everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. While college presidents may have a deep understanding of enrollment management and the importance of retaining and graduating regular students, many have expressed surprise when they learn how the athletic recruiting picture actually works. The pressure on young athletes to perform at a high level throughout their high school and or club careers is real and intense for both the child and their parents. How do prospective college athletes make decisions? As a former Division I and III head coach, you would be amazed at the calculations families make in determining where to go to college and what coach to play for, in my observation. Whether it's trying to earn a full or partial athletic scholarship or just a coveted slot in the admissions office to get into an elite institution, the billion-dollar economy of youth sports is robust and it is real. Parents will spend tens of thousands of dollars throughout middle and high school to get their son or daughter seen by a college coach. Even then, that is the only the beginning of the dance. I'm joined today by someone who cares deeply about where youth sports is going in this country, the out-of-whack values ecosystem in terms of educational priorities, and the disproportionately wealthy children, the families who benefit from it, and to some degree, higher education's complicity in this system. Tom Ferry is the executive director of the Sports and Society Program, a part of the Aspen Institute. A former reporter for ESPN and a convener, Tom explores themes that are often ahead of their time. His reports on football safety, the torture of Iraqi athletes, and drug testing won top awards from the Black Journalists Association, Asian American Journalists Association, and the Women's Sports Foundation, respectively. He is best known for his work on college and youth sports reform, with the nation writing that Tom, quote, has done more than any reporter in the country to educate all of us about the professionalization of youth sports, unquote. Since 2011, the Sports and Society Program has brought together leaders, facilitated dialogue, and inspired solutions to help sports serve the public interest. The group works with many of the largest sport organizations in America. Their signature initiative is Project Play, which helps build healthy communities. Hey, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Karen. So where are we with college recruiting and youth sports today? Give us a sense of the landscape and the issues. Well, the first thing people need to understand is the college sports ecosystem is, is, is deeply connected to the youth sports ecosystem, as is the professional sports ecosystem. They, these are not mechanistic parts that, that live in a separate universe from each other. Decisions made in one realm have deep impacts on the decisions made in the other. And all of this is extremely relevant to, to issues that are central to um, public health and frankly, our democracy, our ability to come together and, and do things together and develop resilience and teamwork and all the characteristics that we like to think and do and, and that sports provide those who have access to the institution. So what you need to know, or what people need to know about, about this connection between college and youth sports 
is that youth sports has been transformed by the chase for the athletic scholarship uh, really since the early 1990s, in part because Title IX became, became enforced and schools had to take that seriously and create more opportunities. And then just the explosion of media contracts in college sports. And what that's done is in, in the early 1990s, there was about $377 million, according to my research, that was distributed by NCAA member colleges at the Division I and the Division II level. That's not including anything that happens at Division III, which technically doesn't have athletic scholarships, as you know, but you know, somehow athletes, somehow they, they end up with, uh, with, with, with a little bit of help. But so that was the amount of money that was in the pot uh, in the early 1990s. Well, today it's about $3.5 billion. So there's about 10 times as much money uh, that has been thrown into the chum, uh, thrown into the, into the waters of youth sports. And it's a lot like chum. It's just made the fish kind of go crazy. <laughs> and what I mean by that is parents now see a kid who shows some athletic potential when they're six and seven and eight years old and says, hmm, wow, okay, they really like this game. They're pretty good at it. If I get them on the private team with a private trainer and the year-round play and the, on and on, the travel and so forth, maybe we can position that child for an athletic scholarship. Or if you're from an upper-income family, it doesn't need the scholarship anyway. Maybe I can position them for uh, preferential admission to that, you know, to Amherst or, or, or you know, or, or Babson or, or Harvard or whatever else it may be, because we know how incredibly difficult it is to get in. And we know that coaches have the ability to go to the, to the admissions department and say, I want this kid in, uh, you know, can they, do they meet some minimum standards? So these, so the, 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 the rewards for athletic success as designed at the college level have completely transformed the landscape of youth sports in this country. It has introduced an environment where uh, people are playing for the downstream or ROI, parents are in particular. We have kids who are, um, uh, you know, sometimes making it and doing just fine, but an awful lot of them are getting burned out. We see the overuse injuries. We see specialization in one sport, commonly by age 12, meaning they're only playing one sport year round. Um, we see kids playing not so much for love of game and the development of physical literacy and the type of uh, health habits that can propel you through life, but you know they're playing for that 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 moment when they're 16 and 17 years old, and some some college says, "Hey, come come play for us." So you know that's how they're connected, and uh, you know if we're going to reform youth sports in this country, uh, college sports has to be part of that conversation. Yeah, I really agree with that. And uh, you had a, a terrific four-day webinar, I think, uh, a couple of weeks ago, where one of your guests, guests was Michael Lewis, the author who wrote Moneyball, amongst other really good books. And he told quite a remarkable story of his introduction into youth sports. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, so, so Michael uh, lives in Berkeley, California, right? Berkeley, you know. <laughs> you know so his, his daughter started in this league where it was, you know, <laughs> it's the kind of uh, sports league that, that conservatives just make fun of, where it's just all about fun and no, nobody keeps score. And, you know, it's, you know, they always wanted the teams to be perfectly balanced and, 
everything was uh, was was you know honestly there's probably a lot that was great about it right it, i mean kids seemed to really according to michael enjoy themselves uh it was about mass participation it was about all the developmental outcomes that we want to see accrue from sports um, but as often what happens is kids cycle out of these recreational local leagues into the travel team environment and so you know michael's daughter was pretty good little you know whatever 10 year old sophomore softball player and so they're off onto the travel and the club thing and spending tons of money traveling all over the country like a traveling salesman of sorts you know spent like 25 nights in irvine california last year uh for softball tournaments and um just really observing the culture and then michael's like look you know i just got caught up in it myself i was that dad you know and 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 he saw all of the <laughs> all of the screaming at the refs and the pressure on the kids and the anxiety from the parents and all the stuff that we, we we know about he but he was in the middle of it and just you know really wrote brilliantly uh about that about that culture and one of the things that i don't think the disconnect that i see is how expensive this culture becomes in the chase for a scholarship that could ultimately be far less than all the costs that you've made in the investment up front. I mean, you're like you said, you're traveling all over the country, flying to Denver, driving to Irvine, perhaps coming to the East Coast. And, and that's not just the kid, that's the family too. So they take family vacations. And, you know, if the whole world cycles around when's the next tournament and how are we going to afford it with the assumption that down the road, there's going to be some sort of ROI. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, parents, there's a mix of reasons why they make that type of investment. There is that downstream tangible ROI of the scholarship or the preferential admission. And, um, and I'll talk in a minute about the other motivations. But the, the thing is, parents, when, when they get into this thing and they start writing the $2,000, $3,000 checks, they often don't know how hard, how rarely that money is distributed, how little, little of it actually goes out the door. There are only a few sports, football, basketball, a few on the, on the women's side that are, you know, full scholarship sports. Most are partial scholarships. You might get $5,000, you know, a, a break on your tuition or free books or whatever else it may be, but you as a parent are still going to pay the freight. Um, and with all this foreign recruiting that we have now, like in sports like tennis, like half of the kids are coming from overseas, ice hockey, um, soccer. I mean, the internet has allowed recruiting all over the world at, at, at a very low cost. So it's more competitive than ever before. So it's still, you know, you, you see this like light go on for parents when their, their kids are like a sophomore, maybe a junior in high school, like, oh, there really isn't much of a, an ROI here, at least in terms of scholarships. Um, now they still may, if they play the game right, they can get the preferential admission to schools, and that could be that could be important in, in, in catalytic. It can get your kid into a, a better school, and and they're now associated with a better quote unquote better tribe that becomes their network um, that could propel them through life. So. Uh, I, I think those, that, that's part of the motivation. The other part is just, you know, parents want their kids involved in um, productive activity. They, you know, and if, 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 you know, all this time they spend in cars and in hotels with them around other kids who 
seem to have goals and are motivated in life, that's, you know, that's seen as really valuable. I mean, you got your eye on your kid. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but, but you know, sometimes it was, with my kids, the best conversations were on those six hour car rides because we did the club thing as well, right? So, yeah. I mean, there, there are some real benefits to the environment. The trouble with it, Karen, is it's just not accessible to a lot of families. I could afford it. Uh, there definitely, you know, a lot of other families can, but even more families cannot do this. They cannot write those checks and their kids just get pushed aside at eight, nine, 10, 11 years old because they just don't have the money or they just don't have the time. They might not have the two parents in the home where, you know, one has the time to drive them to the endless array of practices or drive them four states away for that weekend tournament. Um, it's just not there. And that's one of the reasons why we see a lack of diversity in college sports today, with the exception of uh, football and, and basketball and track and field. I, I think you hit on a couple of points that, that really uh, strike home for me. One is the issue of diversity, uh, because and this is really uh, an issue with so many of the Olympic sports, why they look so white, because the accessibility of to those elite level teams has been primarily driven by middle income to upper middle income families who have the resources to do what you just described. But I also wondered about the economic impact and not just the economics of the family as it is, but the cost that they are spending to do these tournaments. And then the reward is not there and they're looking at how much college costs these days. And eventually the amount of student debt that they may be undertaking. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that trade-off where you're, you're paying these youth sport leagues and teams to get you ahead, doesn't quite work out the way you thought. And now all of a sudden we have debt to look at and we're like, I don't know if I can afford to pay $50,000 to go to college next year. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't seen a study, Karen, here's your next project, right? I haven't seen a study on, <laughs> on the number of college uh, education opportunities that have been lost because families just, they invested in the wrong thing, you know, instead of putting in the 529 plans, they put it into, uh, you know, the, <laughs> you know, the Hampton Inn, uh, three, you know, three states away, <laughs> and that private trainer who sort of fixed your kid's swing for about a week. Uh, I don't know. I don't, you know, it's a really good question. I don't know the data on that necessarily, but people are really stretching. I mean, you know, Michael Lewis talked about this in his in his, uh, his new audio book about families taking out loans. Yeah. Um, so it's not just wealthy families that are doing this. There are these middle income families. They're just stretching, doing anything they can to keep their kids in the game. I saw that as well. You know, we do, we do work through our project play initiative um, and um, sorry about that. And uh, in, in a number about 10 cities and states and counties around the country. We've gone in landscape the state of play. One of them was in Hawaii. And I remember interviewing this uh, family at a softball game um, where both parents were working for nonprofits. They probably had a total income of, I don't know, $50,000, $60,000 a year. Um, and they're traveling their daughter all around the country and paying, you know, I don't know. $20,000 or something like that, you know, just to get her in line for a potential scholarship to where exactly, you know, Hawaii, you have to travel to California and Colorado and all this stuff for tournaments. 
but you know, parents just love their kids. They love their kids and they'll do anything for them and they want them to have a good life. So it's, you know, if you're one of those youth sport entrepreneurs, um, you know, that's always going to be there. That, that, that hook is always going to be there. And I really think our challenge, Karen, is to develop a system in this country that is uh, that makes sports accessible to all kids uh, and a quality experience, you know, good coaches, a local, at the very least, a quality local experience at minimum up through age 12. Like, let's just have all stakeholders in the space here, leagues, NGBs, Olympic Committee, youth sport entrepreneurs, schools, all of it. Say, look, sports are way too good to like, you know, just leave it to just the class of kids who, um, who have the money to, to, for the youth sports arms race or who are like these early emerging stars and somehow get you know, cherry picked and scholarshiped into some of these club programs. And we really need to develop models that make sports more accessible to all kids. And I really do believe that. That's the key to lifting all boats in the space. And, you know, and really every, really everyone benefiting if we could just simply get more kids, uh, you know, active into the teenage years on a regular basis. So how can higher ed leaders, uh, you know, they hold the, the um, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for some of these families, you know, the, the chance to land something for a scholarship to or to have that admission slot granted. How can, uh, how can we um, try to interrupt this system a little bit to try to make athletics more accessible to uh, minorities accessible to more people playing sports so that we're not just rewarding the kids who advance because of economics or because of they just have family structures that allow them to do that. Does it only have to end at age 12? Because really at age no. 12, that's when they become or 13, they become a prospective student athlete. Right. Far around in there. Right. So the NCAA rules become uh, a bit of an area, an area that's tough. What do you think about that? Yeah, look, I think colleges and the NCAA itself, they, they have a real role here. I mean, we'll talk about the incentives in a minute, but I mean, some of the tangible things they can do right now are to get their college athletes trained up in the, in the key competencies in coaching kids, right? So there are about 100,000 NCAA athletes who come out of colleges every year. Um, there, there are even more than that who come out from club teams and intramurals out of campus. They're gonna go back into the communities where they live. They already have, they, they know their sport. They, if you play soccer, you know how to teach a first touch and things like this. What they don't have are like, you know, training and coaching philosophy or safe sport training or CPR or first aid or just simply how to set up a program in your own community and be an asset. So imagine all these football and basketball players coming out of, you know, tough environments, going back into those, those communities with the resources to be effective agents for introducing kids to sports uh, in a form that is going to develop them, you know, as human beings. Um, this could be done through national service, for instance. There's a, a new program introduced this year called Tennis for America, where you know they take former college tennis players and then um, give them a stipend, and they go in, they place them in underserved communities, and they be, they teach the sport, they become mentors, and they tutor as well. Right? Incredible potential human capacity resource that the NCAA 
and colleges or whoever wants to motivate around this. An individual college could do it. Um, just get your, 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 your players trained up. But in terms of like, you know, systemic changing, I mean, I, I think there's a good conversation around um, incentives. What incentives are we as educators, as, as college presidents and athletic directors putting on the table that may, be, may need to be adjusted? I mean, you're familiar with, you've written on it as well. There's this big trend away from, our colleges now are uh, cutting programs, like, you know, second tier programs, you know, the uh, so-called minor sport or Olympic sport programs. And there's been an awful lot of hand-wringing around like, oh my gosh, if we get rid of these, these, these programs, then, you know, kids are not gonna play sports anymore. Or, you know, the public health is gonna be hurt or, you know, or the Olympic team is gonna be hurt. You know, I, I wrote a piece in the New York Times recently said, well, I, I understand those, those, those arguments, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the worst thing in the world, you know, that these, these programs are being cut. Some non-revenue programs, I mean, the vast majority of them, first of all, are gonna be, become club programs at their, at their schools, which just means that there's no scholarship money attached to them, nor is there preferential admission attached to them. Kids are playing club sports for love of the game. Go watch club sports. It is a great environment. Intramurals, I mean, how many of us played intramurals and they're part of just our incredible, they all make us smile because we, we had, yeah, exactly. It was, it, it, was, it was a great experience for me. I had tennis and volleyball and things. I play, I did now play volleyball. I played beach volleyball in San Clemente, California because I learned to play it in intramurals in college, okay? It developed an athlete for life in one particular sport. So I, I think there's a real opportunity on college campuses to, to build up the club model, build up the, the, the intramurals model, you know, invest in that, make your campuses more attractive to students. This is the kind of experience students want. You want to, you know, bring them back to campus, you know, with, with this whole online push, but you want to make the argument for why you want to be in a physical space. Well, intramurals and club are, are part of that. I, I'm not so sure people care about that NCAA fencing team, you know, uh, and, and funding that. And, and students do fund that. I mean, yeah. to the tune of more than a billion dollars a year, they're funding NCAA athletic departments. And so I think this is all part of actually a healthy reset. And I would encourage uh, university presidents and educators to really think hard about, um, you know, what kind of environment do we want to have on our campus? Uh, and then what kind of uh, impact are we having downstream in youth sports by dangling the prospect of a scholarship or preferential admission? I think those are such great points. It reminds me of AmeriCorps. You know, if you've been blessed to get a, a four-year athletic scholarship, then your obligation is to go back and give to your community or to an underserved community with what you've learned and the basics to try to promote the sport. I mean, that seems like a really easy situation. Um, one of the things I, I've done some, uh, some consulting work for the Knight Commission, and one of the things that uh, folks are really interested in is how do we develop our current coaches at the college level now? And are we really incentivizing them correctly for educational benefits, uh, for whole, whole self um, development? Or are we just basically passing people from one end to the, to the next and they're growing because they were somebody's assistant or they were somebody's basketball operations or how, the whole structure of how we train coaches in this country seems like it's also ripe for, for disruption. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the best countries and uh, that, that do sports get their coaches trained in key competencies. They know kinesiology, they understand physical literacy, they understand periodization, they understand, you know, they understand athletic development concepts and they understand human development concepts. Um, how to how to effectively motivate you know your athletes. Now we have lots of great coaches in this country. I mean, historically going back to you know John Wooden and and, uh, and Phil Jackson and on and on and on. Um, terrific, but 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 it you know these people are usually figuring this stuff out on their own. We have a a nation when it comes to coaching. We have a nation of well-meaning uh, coaches and often volunteers at the youth level who are winging it. You know, and sometimes they get it right and, and, and sometimes they get it wrong. There is a way to systematize this. Um, I mean, coaches want to get better at their game. They want to be more, uh, you know, more of a positive influence in, their, in, in the life of their athlete. They want to win more. Well, I mean, there's room for training. There's room for asking them uh, to get trained in at least a minimum set of key competencies. Um, you know, and... And maybe that just starts with that. That's part of like a whole, again, part of a, a holistic concept. You know, there's, uh, you know, other countries have, um, have this whole idea of, of athletic development where, okay, here's what needs to happen with kids between the ages of zero and five, six and nine, nine and 12, 12 and 15 practice to game ratios, you know, traveling, et cetera. These are the influences you need to put in place. Here's how you build a good athlete. Well, the, at the end of that pipeline, in full recognition that not every kid is going to become a professional athlete, is the piece well, is of transitioning them into, into, into being coaches. So how do you just structurally say, okay, these are our athletes um, and we're going to get them trained, which was back to the idea we just talked about a few minutes ago, which is your college athletes are your are a tremendous resource. Now, right. how do we how, how do we not lose that? So I don't know it's a, if it's a matter of going back and asking, uh, you know, uh, or Mike Shashevsky or who's a great coach or or whoever else would be to go to school and get trained. They're there, but like the next generation of potential coaches coming through, how can we be more intentional about giving them the tools that are going to be the coaches that they want to become? And even from sport to sport, I mean, you look at the certification system in soccer, for example, I mean, different levels, A, B, C, D, you know, and that's an accomplishment and it's a measurement of your knowledge and understanding about how to, how to make that particular level function to the best ability for the athletes and for the success of the organization. And yet I see other sports where there appears to be no set of um, certifications or even uh, get quality guarantees that somebody could, knows how to take care of somebody who's having a heart issue on the field or a twisted ankle or even knows what a safe field should look like and what to expect. I worry about those kinds of things. So those are things that you think about as well? Yeah. And so ultimately, um, I think it's a conversation around sports governance. Who is going to create that kind of environment in which people are, you know, who are in charge of, of athletes are know what they're doing and that the organizations that they're affiliated with are abiding by best practices as well, right? So, I mean, there's been, through our work within Project Play from time to time, uh, and increasingly we, we hear the observation that every other nation of the world has a ministry of sports 
to coordinate sport activity. And we do not. We're the supposedly the world sport superpower. We've got more going on here than anywhere else, but there's no coordinating mechanism. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I mean, it's one of the reasons Project Play is kind of really flowered is, is there's been a, a leadership void to, to develop shared solutions and a set of frameworks and best practices and so forth. I've been a little bit careful in like jumping on the bandwagon of yes, let's create a ministry of sports in this country because you know, I don't want to create bureaucracy for the sake of bureaucracy. I think there is a role for the federal government to play, starting with better data collection around who is and who isn't playing sports and where are the gaps and what are the trends and then pushing that data back out to states and cities and helping them design solutions. There are other, other ways the federal government could be, could be useful. I haven't and ruled out the idea of, 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 of advocating for that type of entity, a, a federal department of sports of sorts. Um, but I do think certainly on like a state by state level, um, states can be very effective at connecting silos. You know, we, we've seen this in probably about a dozen states so far where out, the outdoor recreation industry has come together and said, okay, well, you know, let's, let's, let's create a mechanism uh, and, and, you know, and then they, they report to the governor, you know, we create a mechanism to, to coalesce the voice of the, of the, uh, of, of the outdoor recreation industry and develop coherent policy and raise the standards, uh, you know, that are being applied. Um, and so I, I personally think there's a real opportunity there for a motivated state, pick it, it could be Minnesota or the state of Washington or wherever else it may be, it says, you know what, we want to get sports right in our in our in our state here. It's too valuable. So, you know, access is important, reducing injuries is important, all this stuff. So let's connect the silos, let's create a set of best practices, and let's register the organizations that want to do work here in that, you know, that state. And um, you have to abide by a certain minimum set of standards, you know, if you're gonna get registered. Uh, and allow to do your thing. So again, I want to be very careful of like regulatory overreach, but I do think this is all part of the evolution of youth sports and frankly sports in this country. Um, every mature industry has some level of appropriate regulation, which ultimately ends up helping grow that industry and create more opportunities and more quality. So yeah. I want to, we're going to get into that conversation uh, as we move. Well, Tom, that's great. I really appreciate the conversation. Any, if you were sitting here today with uh, the NCAA leadership anxiously awaiting on your, on your advice, what kinds of advice would you provide to the NCAA about youth sports going forward? Oh, I mean, look, I mean, the NCAA has, 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 has people in there uh, and got beaten up a lot over the years. I've done some beating on on myself as well. But there are people like Brian Hayline, who I do think understand, he's the chief medical officer, of course, uh, who understand uh, the issues in youth sports and want to be um, want to be part of the solution. The NCAA has been so wrapped up with all the other issues from NIL and on down the line, it's been hard for them to activate around the youth sports piece. But I would just say to NCAA leaders and really college presidents everywhere that, uh, you know, you can both address your problems and help stakeholders in the youth sports space address theirs. Um, and it's around, you know, your, your real opportunity is um, 
you know, probably standards and certification um, and being very judicious about your, uh, you know, the chum that you throw in the, into the water. If you're going to, if you're going to value athletes, I mean, do you, you know, let them in through a back door, um, you know, with, through special admissions, or do you, if a kid plays on a team or is a captain of the team or is a, you know, an all, all conference player in high school, do you give them a little extra admissions boost, but through the regular process? You know, I mean, is that how you recognize the value of sports in this country? Well, it's a great question to end on. And, and Tom Ferry, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It was great. I learned a lot. And I'm hoping that my listeners took a lot to, of it to heart as well. Well, thanks for having me, Karen. Best of luck.